I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal. She's a senior contributing editor at Kaiser Health News, formerly its editor-in-chief, after 22 years as a correspondent with New York Times. At the Times, she covered a variety of beats from healthcare to the environment and did a stint in the Beijing Bureau. While in China, she covered SARS, bird flu, and the emergence of HIV-AIDS in rural areas. Her 2013-2014 series, Paying Till It Hurts, won many prizes for both health reporting and its creative use of digital tools. Her book, American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back, was a New York Times bestseller. She's a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Medical School and briefly practiced medicine in a New York City emergency room before converting to journalism. Elizabeth, <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. So you've been on the healthcare beat for a long time now, and both your reporting and your book are filled with these kind of jaw-dropping stories about how our healthcare system has really failed. So what do you think maybe are the top two stories that really illustrate how broken our system is? Oh, boy, that's really hard because I think almost everyone who's interacted with the medical system has a story, you know, and the, the way it fails can be both financially and medically. So, um, you know, I, I just picked the most recent. I mean, uh, I recently wrote a column about uh, insurance denials and a guy who had a, um, uh, he had a heart procedure for $143,000 and the insurance company, and it was clearly an auto denial denied it because he said he they said he'd requested a spinal injection and he didn't have any symptoms that in that made a spinal injection medically necessary so you know no human being could have written that denial it's clearly uh, uh, automated um, and then um, you know I think of some of the people who um, many people who've spoken to both me personally for the book and for uh, uh, at KFF Health News, who've become bankrupt because of our medical system, who've had to sell their house, who've had to uh, pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in bills, um, and sometimes because they can't afford it, just don't get the treatment they need. It's, it's you know, when I wrote the book, it came out in 2017, you know, I had hoped that much that it would point out so many things that could be corrected, and that it would be out, uh, unnecessary out of print by now. Unfortunately, you know, one thing—the one thing that has happened that's really good—is the No Surprises Act, right? So that that uh, wonderful feature of American medicine that um, you know, you go to an in-network emergency room and. Bingo! You have a surprise out-of-network uh, doctor. Or um, I remember recently we wrote about a couple in uh, Georgia who had twins who needed care in the NICU. It, you know, again, uh, in-network doctors, uh, out-of-network NICU doctor. I, I mean, sorry, in-network hospital, but out-of-network NICU doctors, which is insane. Like you have no choice when you have premature twins, but to go to the NICU. And then, you know, they had a $300,000 bill. That's, you know, 
So anyway, I guess the the main thing I saw when I researched the book and wrote that series and have seen in spades during my time at KFF Health News is, you know, the financial decisions and the finances are on the front burner of American medicine and patient care is just, it's kind of gone by the wayside. It's just not a priority. It is for many physicians still, but they're working in a system that doesn't facilitate that. It facilitates the opposite. Right. And a lot of these folks, a lot of the stories that you've told about people going bankrupt, many of them have insurance, correct? Sure. They have insurance, but they go to, you know, they have an emergency and they end up in, sorry, they have insurance, but they have an emergency and they end up going to a hospital that's not in network, right? Or uh, they... Or they have a high deductible plan, so they're uh, so they have you know eight thousand dollars in debt, and the average American family has about five hundred dollars in savings. So you know the math just doesn't work. Right, and and it seems to me that the purpose of insurance is exactly to protect you against going bankrupt if you have a massive bill. So it's particularly perplexing that in these situations, the insurance companies. Or the hospitals or the physicians um, somehow skirt that in a way, or or insurance companies don't aren't obligated to pay the insurance. Well, sadly, I think the insu- the the purpose of insurance now, it, as I tell people, it has changed in a sense that it's the main advantage you get when you have insurance is that you're paying or that you're paying your portion of a negotiated rate rather than the the rack rate which is crazy. So, you know, it's just it's just such a, a an awful messed up system. I don't know what else to say, you know. We um we did a project this year well, well it was last year and it's ongoing this year called um diagnosis debt. And most of the people have insurance, you know, it's just that it doesn't work for them when it needs to. I mean, we uh, KFF did a study earlier in the year of ACA marketplace plans, and there were some plans that denied 50% of claims. And the most surprising statistic in it was only one in 500 people appeal those claims. So because the appeals process, as you and I both know, you need like a PhD in, in health economics and an MD and uh, a lot of time and patience to go through that. So I I don't know what, ha- what happens to the other 499 denied claims. I think if they're small, people probably just pay out of pocket. If they're large, people just go without often needed care. It's, it's really tragic. Yeah. And and the system wasn't always this way, right? I can can you give us a sense of what things used to be like? What <laughs> changed when? Sure. Um, now I'm going to go into my I was a dinosaur mode, but you know when I practiced in the um, late '80s, early '90s, I was paid a salary that was decent but not astronomical. I worked in an emergency. I was an ER attending in a New York uh, hospital, and you know, the the bills were largely aggregated, meaning like you didn't pay for every little 
pill you got or every time a nurse drew blood or every time and things things were just reasonable um and i think you know if you had insurance uh you were pretty okay there was very little in the way of copays or deductibles that that um and there wasn't a thing called a facility fee which is now ubiquitous in american medicine and then i think what happened to to kind of do a really fast forward on history of medicine is you know in the 90s the hmos came in and put incredible pressure on hospitals to be more efficient and to make more you know to to give but to give them better value and the hospitals to make that work went to um you know the big business consulting firms uh you know uh, Boston Consulting McKinsey and they said look you guys you're leaving all this money on the table like you can bill for the facility fee they created this thing called a facility fee um they said you know why are you doing a chem 7 you know a basic blood work for 10 dollars you could charge 200 you could charge 2000 you can you know um all of these you know, tests became more and more expensive and were billed individually everything was disaggregated and broken out so an american hospital bill it, you know it's exhausting it's hundreds of pages for a few days in the hospital whereas um i i often joke i saw uh, one of one of the patients i wrote about in that series went to uh belgium for his hip replacement and his entire bill was four pages long and um i could understand it better even though it was in flemish because it was just you know two person comer for the room yes there was a charge for the joint implant and i think there was a minimal charge for anesthesia but you know that's not you've seen hospital bills there you know mere mortals <laughs> can't read them and like every time a nurse walks you down the hall it's billed as something so you know i think the real tragedy and what what got us to this place is you know consulting business consulting firms came in and they looked at hospitals as just another business and where how do you make more money well you just look for ways there you don't do anything differently um you just build differently and that's what happened and it's kind of sad you know i i think before that no one it never occurred to a hospital that oh we're going to bill for time in the recovery room right it's it's just part of having an operation and now you know now it's billed in in 10 minute increments or 15 minute increments and you know those increments are often because you know the surgeons are having dinner or they're you know they're finishing up another case it's not because of the patient really needs all that time so um it's just uh, you know the billing is upside down compared to what the care is so yeah it sounds like it, it's not just then a question of the way the the system is designed but that there was a cultural shift as well both within medicine and outside of it that suddenly saw healthcare as a business rather than as this entity that pursued the best interests of the patient or the health of the patient is that right 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, healthcare, I mean, you know, hospitals were always a business in the sense that they couldn't lose money. They had to be able to finance what they did. But the the driving force of what they did was the care for patients. And they they really they operated on very thin margins. They were run mostly by physicians who didn't know much about the business of medicine. I mean, now most hospitals are run by, if they're physicians, they're physicians with MBAs um, or by people from the business side. And so, you know, what I hear from uh, colleagues who are still in medicine is, you know, you're not seeing enough patients. You've got to generate more revenue. Doctors are incentivized and considered good or bad, depending on how many RVUs, you know, they generate, how much money they generate for the hospital. Not, you know, did you do a good job teaching students or did you do a good job taking care of your patients? And it's just so tragic because, you know, on the one hand, we do have probably the best medical system in the world in terms of the possibilities and the interventions available. But um, once people get into it, it it becomes, well, patience, I mean, it becomes a nightmare, both financially and medically. God, there's there's so much wrong at this point. I'm, uh, you know, it's hard to know where to begin. I mean, yeah, I mean, the, so at, just for our listeners, the RVU thing, or, or I think they, I think it stands for relative value units. Yeah. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I think all physicians in the field now kind of recognize what this means is essentially it's a unit productivity that, that creates money for the hospital. And I had a colleague, a senior colleague a while ago tell me that you get more money for making sure that the patient is sick, has more problems, and does not get better than you do for a visit in which you make the patient healthy, which is so wild to think about, but it's true. You get more RVUs if there are more health problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, and and, uh, some of the uh, Medicare Advantage plans kind of live by that. You know, they try and they do they under the guise of doing home visits to help patients they're like oh fall risk that's we get paid more for that oh little bit of hypertension we get paid more for that you know everything is about what generates the most income and and it's not what the physicians are thinking about but you know i i there was one guy in my book who uh, he was a pediatrician at a hospital in Oregon, and you know they told him when the RVU thing came in and everyone was worried about productivity, they they had classes in how to build more, and so they were looking at one of his charts, and they said, you know, if you'd only listened to this kid's lungs, you could have built it as a level four visit, not level three. And he said, yeah, but the kid had a hurt had you know had a had a hurt ankle you know, why would I listen to his lungs? And so, you know, it's, it's just such a mess. I'm sorry. I I wish I could say, I, I could say something positive, but at the moment, it's a little sad that 
for me personally, after all these years, that things have not gotten better. Yeah. And and hospitals now require these sort of mandatory billing seminars where they go over exactly that. What level can you bill? I mean, sorry, part of it is to prevent fraud, and it, that makes total sense to me. But part of it is also to figure out how to maximize billing. And yeah, I mean, every every doc now has to go through these seminars and sort of listen to them, you know, go through the, the technicalities of what counts as a higher billing level and what doesn't. It's, um, it's frustrating. Okay, I'm so glad. I'm, that, that, that's the reason. I love being a doctor, but I could not deal with that. I can tell you personally, because, <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's not what should drive the system. And I think it, even more than that, it, it drives a lot of people away from medicine. It contributes to low morale among physicians that, you know, they want to, they want to spend time with their patients, but you know they're being told they're not productive enough, so um, not incentivized. Yeah, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about something you wrote in in your book, which was shocking to me. I had no idea this was going on. You wrote that in 2013, Horizon and the generics manufacturer Par Pharmaceutical entered into a pay for delay settlement. So Horizon will pay par not to produce a generic version of a drug of questionable utility until January 1, 2023. So essentially, one pharmaceutical company is paying another not to produce a generic drug so that there's no competition for the drug, which means it made financial sense for the pharmaceutical company to basically bribe this other company. And you're, you mentioned that these kinds of arrangements have increased dramatically over the last decade or more. So decreases competition to produce cheaper alternative drugs. And it costs the consumers and taxpayers about $3.5 billion in higher drug costs every year. And this, that the system is set up in this way kind of boggles my mind. What happened to the pharmaceutical side of things that allowed this? Well, you know, we can start with the same thing that happened in hospitals. You know, they were once usually run by scientists who really wanted to do good. And now, again, it's a lot of business folks who want to see how we maximize profit. And for that reason, you know, because the U.S. is the one country that doesn't regulate drug prices or negotiate drug prices in any way. Most new drugs are introduced here because they know that kind of sets the bar for what they can ask elsewhere because they can go, oh, we're selling it for $30,000 a month in the U.S., so you know we'll, we'll give it to you in Germany for 15000 But we do pay you know more than twice as much for almost every drug. Um, we still, um, you know, when... when I first heard about that case with Par and Horizon. I thought, could that be legal? And of course, the answer is it is, and it's still going on. Um, you know, probably more than it was then, because, you know, I I like to say, um, you know, everyone thought of Martin Screlly, the pharma bro, who, um, y- you know, marked up the price of Daraprim um, as an outlier. Uh, he's representative of a big part of the pharmaceutical industry. You know, there's you find a drug, 
you maximize how much you charge for it and see what the market will bear. And often, you know, we see with like the MS drugs, you know, classical economic theory would say, well, if there are seven of them, that should they should get into a price war and that will bring prices down. But no, in fact, each time a new one comes into the market, they price it slightly higher than the others. And everyone says, oh, look, you know, the, the people are paying that. So we should raise our price too. So, you know, in many other countries, the the rule is when they're, when they're uh, regulating drug prices is it can start at a high price if it's really novel, but then the price should come down as the product ages. And the price of novel drugs in this country tends to go up over time. That makes no sense whatsoever. And competition just isn't there. Um, I was speaking yesterday to someone about hospital consolidation, right? And you would think, I mean, that's a whole other ballgame. But uh, since I wrote the book, it's become much worse. You know, there are many parts of the country where one hospital system has a monopoly. But even in areas like where I'm from in New York, where there are a bunch of hospital systems, it's not enough to bring prices down. It's more like kind of nudge, nudge, a quiet collusion, but not active collusion to just keep prices high. Everyone's doing it and everyone's doing well by it. So why would you start a price war? You know, I sometimes joke, I'm, um, I'm waiting for someone to open up like a target of hospitals where, you know, it's just no frills and they do say, wait a second, you know, doing a colonoscopy doesn't have to cost $13,000. We could do it for a thousand, you know, which is what it would cost in Germany or Switzerland, which are good health systems with lots of insurers. They're not government run health systems. Yeah. The, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and it's something that you had mentioned about price transparency, because uh, you know, I know things have started to change, hopefully, over the last couple of years. But you had mentioned that United Healthcare paid anywhere from $17 to $618 for a vitamin D test. This is a few years ago. And I wonder, is, is that still going on, this exponential kind of variability in costs for things? And do you see the laws around price transparency in medicine changing any of that? You know, it, it, transparency has been every, um, it's been kind of the great white hope of medicine that if you just put up the prices, people will be able to shop around. But of course, it, it helps at the margins. You know, there are certain things I can shop around for if I have a high deductible plan and I need uh, an MRI, for example, I can shop around. But most things in medicine are not shoppable. Prices are transparent only in the sense that they're on some website on a health systems website in a readable form if you know medical codes. And, you know, if you're getting a vitamin D test, you shouldn't have to do like it, two hours of research to figure out which hospital is and which place is lower. And I think that kind of variability still exists because, you know, there's no... 
There's no cap on what hospitals can charge or what anyone or what labs can charge. I generally tell people to avoid, and you know, my doctor's computer is connected to the lab at the hospital, right? Um, Hospitals are usually the most expensive place to run labs. So I, you know, I say, great, you want me to get these labs? I can go to LabCorp or Quest where they'll be much, much cheaper. But, you know, the doctor says, let's get a CBC. You don't want to have to go home and, you know, scroll through, you know. So, you know, to me, transparency, if it's going to help at all, means, you know, putting it up on the wall of the clinic. Um, But, you know, once you're there, are you going to turn around and say, no way? Um, It's really a, it's a first step, but it's not really an answer to me, you know because of the the huge variability of price um, and because of the unique ma- nature of medicine. I mean, if I think I said in the book, you know, you wouldn't expect a, a Volvo in New Jersey to cost 10% of a Volvo in Arizona, right? But that's what happens in, in medicine. So, you know, during the Trump administration, they did require all insurers to, uh, I mean, all hospital systems to post their prices and I think it's in a machine readable form on their websites. Compliance has not been great, um, first of all. And then a year later, they required them to post the prices they pay to insurers. But again, it's, um, it's really a lot to ask of patients when they're sick. They should be concentrating on themselves, not, you know, shopping like they do for a loaf of bread. So you see price controls as sort of as more of the answer here rather than? Well, that's kind of a toxic answer in the U.S. that I don't know that will ever happen. I It would work, you know, it, but um, I don't see that happening. Some have suggested price caps instead of price controls. Like you can't just charge whatever you want. There's a limit. I don't have a good answer. That's why I'm so I sound so frustrated because I think the things that would help that other countries do we seem allergic to. Now, you know, just last year Medicare, well, Congress passed a bill that said Medicare could negotiate the price of some drugs, but um you know, it was it was such a, a sad mini step towards real price negotiation. I think it was first 10 drugs, then 20 drugs. And, you know, it it uh, was the most used drugs in Medicare. And I, I joked with my colleagues at, at KFF Health News that now the pharma game is going to be keeping your drugs off that list, you know, so you can charge whatever you want. So um, it's just sad. And part of it is, as you mentioned, the, the courts and how we define patents. Um, You know, it used to be there was one patent per drug. Now drugs have 20, 30 patents. And the reason for that is not because they're so different than, you know, when penicillin was discovered. It's because if you're a drug manufacturer, 
you patent, you know, the process by which you extract the drug, the process by which you purify it, the process by which you bottle, you you just flood the flood the zone with patents so that a generic maker that comes along, you know, to 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 um, to put a generic on the market, you have to say you're not violating any patents. And when there's one patent, it's pretty easy to prove. When there are thirty, it's really hard. And then as you mentioned, you know, when you even when you prove that, then there are these side deals that say, well, we'll pay you not to produce. So it's it's a very broken patent system as well. You know, I think drugs shouldn't be allowed to have that many patents. And there should be, you know, we always talk about a faster road to generic entry. But the real problem, I think, is in the patent system and the way we allow drugs to be patented now. So, and, you know, a big difference in drug companies is than when I was practicing is they are all lawyered up the wazoo now, right? And they spend a lot of time, you know, we talk about with great fanfare, the fact that, um, patients will only pay $35 for insulin out of pocket, right? That was a, and that's a good thing. Certainly, you know, people with diabetes shouldn't have to pay a lot. Um, they probably shouldn't have to pay anything because it's not their fault they got diabetes, you know. But, um, you know, that's kind of, it looks good, but behind that feel-good moment is the fact that the cost of insulin which is a very, very old drug, is still, I don't know, three or four times higher than in any other country. And our insurers are paying that, right? We may be paying $35, but our insurer is still paying this inflated price for an incredibly old drug that lawyers have managed to sue and sue again to keep their product exclusivity. You know, they make little tweaks to the drug, they take generic drug maker to court. All of this just delay, delay, delay. So you have, you know, brand patent protection. Hmm. So let me just try and summarize this so I get this straight. So the reason that, let's say, certain drugs are so expensive is multifactorial. One, they're patented up the yin yang. Two, these companies may be paying generic manufacturers not to produce generics. So there are essentially no alternatives, meaning when a patient is prescribed a drug, doctor prescribes a drug for a patient, the insurance company for that patient can't say, no, we're not going to pay this much money because there's this alternative that you, pres you could prescribe. There is no alternative. So the insurance company is forced to pay that much money and then passes on the cost to the employer-sponsored health insurance or whatever private insurance the patient has. That may be a very simple way of putting it, but does that kind of get to the heart of the matter? Okay. So there's this totally bizarro concept called a branded generic where the brand maker will make a generic well, but it's the exact same drug in the exact same factory and they'll put it in different packaging and charge slightly less than the brand. And, you know, so it's like buying a Fendi handbag where they take off the little brass thing and say, oh, but you know it's a real Fendi, you know? So 
that's a bizarre concept. Another bizarre concept is there may be alternatives, but the insurer may have um, a deal with these middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers that, you know, they get a special price on one form of a drug. So they want you to use that. And it, even if it's not on the open market, the cheapest, I mean, it's such a complex system how drugs are priced when, you know, it should be pretty straightforward. And I think, you know, part of the problem is some of the newer drugs are wonderful. You know, they're amazing. You know, some of the new cancer drugs, checkpoint inhibitors, they've changed care. But how do you put a rational price on that? You know, I think that's something we haven't dealt with. You know, what's the price of, you know, curing or extending life a few years? Now, the in Britain, there's something called NICE, which evaluates, you know, new drug comes on the market. What what would a price, rational price be? And, you know, in terms of the benefit to patients, in terms of its healing potential, and, you know, in terms of a pretty profit too, but it's not the sky's the limit, which it is here. Yeah. You know, speaking of the, all this pharmaceutical stuff, one of the, mm -hmm. I think you, there were an article recently about drug coupons. And this was a, I did not know the whole background behind this, but we use, we use drug coupons all the time because, um, you know, I'll, I'll just give an example. So a Pixaban or Eliquis, which is a blood thinner that's used very commonly for a secondary prevention of stroke, a lot of insurance companies may not cover it and patients may need a brief course of it for one thing or another, or they may need an extended course and eventually they'll change their insurance and it's going to be covered. Whatever it is, for a certain period of time, they need a, some way to pay for this drug, which is out of pocket, very expensive. So we give patients these drug coupons all the time. I mean, that Pixaban is the best of the available blood thinners for specific indication. But you've written that there's some kind of subterfuge or sleight of hand involved with these drug coupons, that while we may see them as this sort of, as the generosity, as this act of generosity of pharmaceutical companies, that perhaps they reflect something darker. Can you explain kind of how that's the case and what goes on there? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I wrote about it when I was faced with uh, whether I should use one. The thing with drug coupons is they're they're generally called or they were called copay coupons. So you know, for many drugs, your insurer will pay eighty percent, and the patient has to pay twenty percent or something like that, according to your insurance. Um, and you know, if the drug is twenty thousand dollars a year, your twenty percent is forty thousand dollars. That's a lot of money, right? Or it's even $10,000 a year. Uh, your 20% is, I'm bad at math, but um, $2,000. So what the drug makers do is they say, oh, we'll give you a coupon for that $20,000. Don't worry, we'll pay it. But really, that just enables them to uh, charge your insurer $10,000, even if the drug isn't worth it, that your insurer will pay the $8,000. So insurers hate copay coupons. Um, 
Medicare and Medicaid don't allow people to use them because they consider them essentially a kickback, which they are. But, you know, patients and physicians, I think, have no alternative, right? Otherwise, they couldn't pay for the drug. So it's very tempting. It looks like a gift, but it's a a kind of dark horse gift because it's when you ask, why are my insurance premiums going up year after year? It's because of things like this, where, um, you know, there's a bit of generosity up front that looks good and behind the, the curtain, there's a big money flow on your behalf from your insurer. I want to switch to talking about hospitals because you had mentioned kind of monopolization of hospitals and in particular nonprofit hospitals. I mean, at Penn, the residents just voted to unionize. So it's like, I think it was 90% of the the house staff in a vote um, voted to unionize. And it's, I guess, because, you know, because all this is going on, this is sort of a relevant question, but you, you bring this up in, in American sickness that hospitals have turned residencies into kind of a profitable, profitable business. And these are nonprofit hospitals. How do hospitals do this? Can you run us through kind of what goes on there? Well, you know, <laughs> but residents are allowed to work 80 hours a week, right? That's the, the maximum, but they're really cheap labor right? They do a, a lot of the scut work on the floor. They um, they wheel patients around and Medicare, CMS, HHS subsidizes their training and they don't get paid very much, right? So it's, it's, it's cheap labor. I don't remember exactly the number, but hospitals actually make money on residents, you know, because uh, if they had to hire people, to do all those jobs, um, it, it would be hard. So, you know, and what does that mean? I, I don't know if it means less time being taught and more time doing, you know, scut work on the floors. But, um, you know, hospitals want residencies because res- residents are cheap labor. And uh, that's not a great state of affairs. Um, you know, again, we have no sense of what is the right amount for a physician in training to be paid? Um, you know, and then, and as a result, I think people work really hard during those years of residency. They're not well paid. And then when they get out, they feel like, you know, I deserve the moon. Um, and it's just a, a bad way to uh, run hospitals. Um, but, you know, in hospitals at this point, and you say nonprofit, I don't think at this point there's any difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit hospital. Um, when I called Charity Navigator to say, um, I, I don't see any hospitals in your ratings, you know, they rate charities for, um, you know, how well they use their money, the money that that's donated or that they make. And they said, oh, we would, we don't even rate hospitals because they're just such a different beast. They're not. I mean, they are technically nonprofit and that their balance sheets don't show a profit, but they mostly have huge operating surpluses and they spend them on things like executive compensation, building new wings, building hospitals in the Middle East or in Europe, investing in um, in uh, venture capital funds. Like that's not something hospitals ever did 
40 years ago. And I think, you know, one of the things that I would like to see more of is, um, you know, hospitals not for profit status challenged. Um, because I, it's fine. Like if you're not going to do, you know, you're supposed to do under the ACA, hospitals are supposed to do um, charity care and community benefit. Well, fine. I don't know how um, building a hospital in London, a fancy for-profit private hospital, benefits the Cleveland Clinic and the citizens of Cleveland in any way, shape, or form. So, um, you know, it's fine if if you're not going to do that not-for-profit mission, but um, then pay taxes. Um, so, but it's been very hard, mayors, and I don't want to pick out one hospital because every, uh, almost every not-for-profit hospital is doing the same thing. And the problem you see is that Mayors try to challenge this sometimes, you know, because they want the tax revenue. And A, the hospitals are lawyered up far better than city governments. Um, and B, the hospitals uh, like UPMC in Pittsburgh are, um, y- you know, they're the biggest employer in the state. They have a huge political power and job power. So, it's very, very hard to um, turn that ship around and say, you know, maybe the better way to do it would be to say, okay, you're supposed to do community benefit and charity care. This is what we want to see, and this is how we want to see it. But again, very hard at this point to to put the toothpaste back in the tube. My understanding too is that you know a lot of these systems have connections to. Congress people because of that economic power that they have. And, you know, that gives them more political clout in addition to the economic power. Oh, sure. Sure. You know, the Greater New York Hospital Association is a big donor to, you know, the senators in uh, New York and in D.C. to various people on committees that might change healthcare policy. So, you know, I wish lobbying didn't work, but it does. And, you know, I'm sure they have a good narrative about why they need to charge what they do and why they, I mean, I mean, it all sounds good. You can make, you can, of course, healthcare is noble. You know, it's it, at its core, it is noble, but as a business, it's very kind of ignoble, I would say. Yeah. And, and what role do physicians play in kind of perpetuating this system? Well, you know, I, I, I'd i always hoped, and, you know, the, the unionization of residents is, is an interesting beginning in this. I mean, hospitals can't run if there are no physicians, right? So, um, you know, physicians are stuck between a rock and a hard place and that you don't want to strike because you're only hurting the patients. But... Um, I wish they would be more vocal and instead of a lot of complaining about the system that they hate, get more organized and be more vocal and um, be more politically active and active in running their hospitals and on their hospital boards. Problem is, it's not it. It's not what physicians went into medicine to do. And it probably impacts adversely their future income to do so. 
So I think, but I am heartened that younger physicians are pushing back against the healthcare system in ways that the people of my generation mostly saw it happening, grumbled a lot, and, you know, just tried to keep their head down and see their patients as best they could. I think younger physicians look around and say, why is it like this? Um, I, it's often the residents I hear from who say, like, I went to the to our hospital billing office and I wanted to know how much an MRI costs because I'm ordering them from the ER and they wouldn't tell me. Like, you know, really? Uh, why shouldn't you have prices on order sheets? You know, I was an ER doctor. An MRI from the emergency room is going to cost many multiples of an MRI ordered at an outpatient facility, you know, two blocks away. And I can't, I think in my time it was mostly CAT scans, but I can't remember how many CAT scans. I kind of, not thoughtlessly, but, you know, I ordered just, well, the patient's here, we might as well get the CAT scan now rather than doing it as an outpatient. But if I knew the price, if the price was on that order sheet, boy, you probably wouldn't order it. You would probably say, get one next week. Um, so, you know, I think I'm seeing a lot of lot more activism and social activism among doctors, but, you know, I, I almost think of it as like physicians and nurses are the, um, they're kind of the worker bees of this system, right? And so I'm like, rise up, <laughs> you know, break your chains, you know, but that's very hard to do because you're busy, you know, I, I would love to see more independent physician practices. That's really hard these days, as you know, you know, I think the system is so working against that, that model of physician who, you know, primary care physician who wants to have an independent practice, they can't. So they often, they sell out to private equity or they sell out to the hospital system and we just get more and more consolidation. And, you know, you go to see your longtime family doctor and bingo, now there's a facility fee for what? It's the same office as it was before, but now it's owned by a hospital or by private equity. So um, I, I feel the frustration of the physicians that um that I hear from a lot, you know, what can I do? It's it's hard. It's particularly at the bigger hospital systems, you know. The people who tend to get on the boards are the people with MBAs, not the people who are seeing patients. Yeah. I mean that that's the other thing is no one teaches us about this stuff in medical school or residency. I mean the the uh, the healthcare economics black box is just that it's a black box to i think a lot of physicians and wading into it feels uncomfortable it feels unnatural in some way and there's a lot of ignorance about it because it's so complicated and because there's so much else i think pulling physicians in another direction it's really it's really tough yeah it's really hard it's sense you know, I, I I often compare it to like a Rube Goldberg machine. It's just, you know, it's endlessly complicated. It's not why people go into medicine. I do see 
you know, in, in my generation, very few people in medicine got MBAs, that dual degree thing. Now, many people do. And I wish more of it was to say, how can we get costs lower rather than I want to become a hospital executive and make, you know, $4 million a year rather than, you know, seeing patients and doing colonoscopies or something and making much less, you know, it's, we, we just, we incentivize the wrong thing. I mean, when I was practicing and I was at, you know, major medical center, level one trauma center, there were very few administrators, you know, um, I just saw towards the end of the time, people with clipboards coming around trying to analyze productivity. Now, you know, hospitals have CEOs, seven layers of vice president, vice presidents, and they're all paid. I'm sorry, I'm going to offend a lot of people absurdly well, and sorry, and they're all paid absurdly well. And, you know, I, when I was writing the book, I called one of these hospitals who was paying, you know, it was a small small to medium-sized community hospitals paying its CEO $2 million a year or something like that. And I said, well, and well, how, how do you justify this? And they said, well, running a hospital is complicated. And I was like, yeah, but running the Ford Foundation, which has projects in like 90 countries, is way more complicated. And, you know, their CEO makes under a million, you know, and and so, you know, it's just depressing that it's so corporatized now. And, you know, there are compensation boards that, of course, work for the executives of the hospital. And they're not going to say your compensation is too high. And, and I guess it's become, and I hear this all the time, and I kind of get the emotion behind it. But, um, you know, well the CEO of Moderna made 40 million and, you know, the CEO of Aetna made 30 million. So we deserve it. And uh, it's become a kind of race to the compensation top, which is kind of sad. You know, my view is, yeah, they're all overpaid, but, you know, uh, nothing is right-sized in medicine right now in terms of the finances in America. And it really has to be, um, you know, when I was writing the book, I remember one or after the book came out, I got an angry letter from a physician saying, you know, you know, I, I deserve how much I'm paid. I mean, LeBron James is paid 25 million. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're one of like 300 dermatologists in suburban New Jersey and LeBron James is like a, a once in a generation basketball player. So it's, it's just, it, you know, but I think part of it is if you don't have what older generations had the, the kind of joy of getting to know patients and see patients and take time with them and that human re emotional return, which, which is so important, you're like, well, I better be paid a lot because this is not fun or interesting and I don't feel good about what I'm doing anymore.
No, I think that's exactly right. And I, you know, to that point, I think the MBA route or for, for physicians or the maybe the what we call like protected time to do administrative things route is a way of I'm being presumptuous when I say this, but it, it's a way of offloading some of the insane pressure that is now on physicians to see as many patients as they possibly can within a really short period of time. And so to escape that, you know, I think they look for other career routes, which is a shame because it, as you said, it should be, this is such a meaningful profession and career. It should be that we're seeking out more of that rather than withdrawing from it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just less and less time and, you know, and, you know, it's all the things that were fun about medicine and meaningful, I think, for a lot of physicians 30, 40 years ago, a lot of those things are gone, you know, because of the time pressure, the productivity pressure, you know, and physicians are not like making widgets in a factory. They're, they're seeing human beings and dealing with complex problems and you know, the patients are, I think, more often angry than grateful because there's not enough time to spend with them and my doctor didn't talk to me. And it's really pulled apart that whole relationship, which was at the core of and should be at the core of medicine. Um, I get it. I get how frustrating it must be and how, and I hear, you know, it's funny, we have this Bill of the Month project with NPR and CBS. And some of the best submissions are from physicians who find themselves as patients and go like send in their bills and go, this is insane. You know, this is, uh, how can they do this? And I'm like, yeah, that's, and I, I think, you know, the hospitals and the uh, practice managers don't really want the physicians to know what's build in their name because the physicians would say that's not right you know that's not right you know why we got a, a submission the other day from a physician about his colonoscopy uh, right and why is the anesthesiologist who basically did a push of propofol paid three thousand dollars which is more than the gastroenterologist and more than the facility fee like how did how does that make any sense and the insurer pays you know it's it's you know it, there's a lot of nutty things that go on and why, why does it why do they do it it's because they can you know so, so. last question is is yeah. there any hope do you do you find any reason to be <laughs> optimistic well, here and, and, and why? Well, I, I can't not be optimistic because otherwise it's too depressing to, um, to think about. I, I, I do see like little steps being taken by Congress in terms of, you know, the surprise billing law was an important law this beginning to tackle drug price regulation. The FTC is getting more active in uh, trying to block hospital mergers and consolidation. So I, I guess what makes me hopeful is 
it can't go on this way. <laughs> you know, it, it's got to break. And I look at other countries, you know, and not that I think we'll go to a national health system as Canada did, but, you know, before Canada had its national health system, it was like us and things got really out of hand. And one province changed it, a guy named Tommy Douglas, who was uh, the, uh, he was governor of the province. It created hospital strikes. It created a lot of chaos. But once one province did it successfully, people liked it. And other provinces said, we want that too. So I, I don't think that's going to be the path here because people like you know, don't like regulation, but I do think little by little things are going to have to change. Otherwise, it's just not sustainable. I mean, we, we I think I mentioned we did this series, Diagnosis Debt, last year, and 40% of Americans have medical debt now. Wow. I mean, that's 40%? Just, oh yeah. my gosh. That's just, that's, that's insane. You know, that's really insane. And not all of them, big medical debt, but some of them, uh, you know, how many people we talk to who are on payment plans, which I think 15% were on payment plans, but did not expect to be able to pay off their medical bills during their lifetimes. You know, that should not be, you know, it should not be the burden on American families that it is. And you know where will where will the change come from? I don't know. It's hard to see. You know how that change will come, whether the uh, Medicare plan to negotiate drug prices will broaden more quickly than anticipated. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of money opposing change, a lot of lobbying opposing change, but there are also a lot of young doctors who just hate the system as it is and don't want to work in it. And, you know, if you're near retirement age, you can say, I'm, I'm done. I'm fed up with this system. I'm, I'm out. But if you're at the beginning of your career, there's much more incentive to like, you know, to rise up and say, we're not going to work in a system that doesn't help us and our patients. Because you guys are the, you know, you're, you're, you're what makes the system work ultimately. On that note, uh, Elizabeth Rosenthal, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.